Hello. Good evening. It's a joy to be here. My name is Gina Sharp. And these are um, our monthly sitting and uh, Q&A sessions. So we're having summer in December. <laughs> so we can enjoy that too. Even while being a little bit concerned that it's not for the wrong reasons that uh, we're having such warm weather. So our format is to sit for 45 minutes, to do some standing or walking meditation for about 15 minutes, and then we come back and talk about the Dharma, or see what's on your mind, and we have some discussion, etc. So in the words of the Buddha, if you sit and know that you are sitting, the entire Dharma will open up to you. So know that you are sitting. This embodied being Knowing sensation in the body is how we actually know that we have a body. It's not through thinking about the body or thinking this is my body or this is me, but actually through allowing presence in this body. So we know that there is a body. And to come into the present moment, letting go of the past, letting go of the future, fears and hopes, and allowing this experience now to be known. Perhaps just seeing the pressure of the buttocks meeting the, the cushion or the chair. Knowing pressure and vibration or air element. Knowing hardness or softness through your contact with the floor or the cushion, through your feet or through your buttocks is earth element. Knowing the temperature of the body, of the air, what is felt, is fire element. Knowing the fluidity and cohesion in the body is knowing water element. These are not concepts but actually directing the attention to the knowing of the, the feelings and sensations in the body.
and arriving here in the present moment knowing these sensations now. Knowing the posture of the body that it's seated here and allowing the attention to come to rest in the breath. Being precise and gentle in our attention allowing everything to let go that isn't of this present moment. Becoming intimate with the breath, not through the concept or the idea of the breath, but through the moment-to-moment -moment experience of the breath. allowing the breath to be the anchor of attention and paying attention when other experiences become predominant, letting go of the breath, knowing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing or thinking as it arises, abides, and passes away. And then allowing the attention to return to the breath when no other experiences are appearing and becoming predominant in the field of awareness. Allowing the attention to be a dance a graceful, elegant dance rather than a jerky movement, a kind of laying back and allowing with just the lightest touch of direction towards the breath when no other experiences are presenting themselves. Wisdom and compassion are both the path of our practice and the fruit of our practice. One aspect of wisdom 
as well as compassion is the correct intention for goodwill and harmlessness. So we're encouraged to cultivate kindness and compassion as part of our wisdom practice. And one classical way of cultivating kindness is what is known as the metta practice, metta being the Pali word for loving kindness. This intention for kindness and goodwill and harmlessness. And one way of practicing it and cultivating it is to express wishes of goodwill to a progression of beings, starting with ourselves. Because we learn first how to be kind to ourselves and from that kindness to ourselves, we emanate and radiate kindness towards all of the beings in this universe. And the classical teachings are to have, to express four wishes. Wishes for safety, wishes for happiness and peace, for health and for ease. And first we direct those wishes to ourselves. Allowing a felt sense of this body and mind sitting here or an image of ourselves either as we are now or as we were at a younger age when we were even more lovable and direct those wishes, may I be safe from harm. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be healthy and strong of body and live with ease. Now be silent for a moment and allow you to repeat those wishes for yourself, for safety, for peace and happiness, for health and for ease. And to express those wishes in as sincere a way as you can. And then bring to mind someone, a friend perhaps, a loved one, someone whom you respect and who brings a smile to your face immediately as you think of them. Someone who's been good to you. 
and send them the same wishes while holding this image close and dear to your heart. May you be safe from harm, perhaps even saying their name. May you be happy and peaceful, healthy and strong and live with ease, free from struggle. And is there a friend in your life, a dear one who is struggling right now? And can you bring an image of that dear one into your heart? Really allow that image to be as clear as it can be in your mind and heart. felt sense of this being, sending your wishes of goodwill and of kindness for safety, peace and happiness, health and ease. And is there someone in your life with whom you're having some difficulty? Maybe not the worst difficulty you can remember having with someone, but someone who there's a bit of a struggle with right now. And can you recognize that just as you want to be happy, so does this person. Just as you want to be free from suffering, so do they. And can you allow an image of this being to come into your heart and mind? having as clear an image as you can of this being, sending those same wishes that you sent for yourself and for your dear ones to this being. Recognizing that even though there may be struggles, there is still a common humanity 
place where you're not separate. And that you can wish them well for your own sake as well as for theirs. So sending the same four wishes of safety, peace and happiness, good health, and freedom from struggle or ease. And then allow those same good wishes to pervade all the beings in this room. Sending good wishes to each and every single being here. May each and every one of you be safe from harm. May each and every one of you be happy and peaceful. May each and every one of you be healthy and strong of body. Live with ease, free from struggle. And allow this opening of the heart, this feeling of goodwill and well-wishing to pervade, as the Buddha said, all the corners of the world, radiating kindness over the entire world. Outwards and unbounded. Imagining your kindness and your goodwill spreading in all eight directions. The north, to the northeast, to the east, to the southeast, to the south, to the southwest, to the west, and to the northwest, above and below, ten directions. All the beings in all of those directions. upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, may all beings be at ease. And just feeling that radiation. And that goodwill.
what I'd like to invite you to do now is to, um, we're going to, to just move as we will, do some standing meditation perhaps because the, the room is too crowded to do walking meditation, although there, you can do a little bit of, a few of you could do walking meditation if you wish. I'd like to do this in silence and to allow this space of meditation to be maintained so that your, your attention and your awareness is continuous, it's not broken. As you arise from your seat, to pay attention to the body, to how the body moves, how it shifts, to pay attention first to the intention to move, and then notice how miraculously the body complies with that intention. So that we're studying this mind-body all the time. We're being aware we're not letting go of our attention and our awareness. So please feel free to stand, to do a little bit of moving, just being aware of the fact that we have a pretty tight room and allow your body to stretch if you need to go to the bathroom, to go to the bathroom, but allow uh, your attention to stay pretty continuous. And then we'll come back. I'll ring the bell in about 10 minutes. So as you know, um, my uh, format on these Tuesday evenings when I come once a month is actually to, um, to just see what questions you have and to have a dialogue sometimes or inquiry or if there's a question that I think really needs answering, I'll, I'll answer. But I wanted to start uh, on this theme of kindness tonight by telling you a couple of, reading you a couple of stories. Um, in this season, I think reflecting on generosity, reflecting on kindness is really important because there's so many ways in which we get triggered by, by family get-togethers, by all of the, you know, the, the, the ways that we can get triggered in, in, this, in this season. And so to reflect on kindness and reflect on generosity, I think, is very helpful. So this is a story told by my teacher, Jack Cornfield. He says, no matter how extreme the circumstances, a transformation of the heart is possible. Once on the train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who had worked for the State Department in India but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer. He had been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. 
For a time they talked and when she left she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months, he lived there, ate her food, and worked at the job. Then one evening she called him in the living room, into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room and I'd like to adopt you if you let me and she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he never had. And Jack says, our own story may not be so dramatic, yet we have all been betrayed. We must each start where we are, in large and small ways, in our own family and community. We will be asked to patiently forgive over and over. And then there's a saying from the Dhammapada, do not ignore the effect of each wise action, saying this will come to nothing. Just as by the gradual fall of raindrops, the water jar is filled, so in time, the wise become replete with good. And there's a lovely little um, vignette of New York City that I wanted to read to you also. It's a bitterly cold winter's day in New York City and I'm riding the subway home from work, still bundled against the freezing temperatures on the street and fairly immune to the presence of others around me. The train stops and a woman, much too lightly dressed for the weather, enters our car. As she makes her way through the crowd, I hear the familiar plea for money. A few people, myself included, offer up a dollar or some loose change. Then a well-dressed man stands up. I assume he is getting ready to exit at the next stop. But instead, he removes his heavy wool coat and scarf and drapes them around the woman's shoulders. I am shocked by his generosity and ashamed of my own paltry charity. The woman seems embarrassed. She tries to give the coat and scarf back, but the man refuses. Everyone on the car has stopped talking to watch. 
the woman bows her head in gratitude, and the man smiles and bows in return. The silence gives way to applause. Hi, and could you just give me your name? Uh, Kyle. Kyle, hi. Hi. Um, my question is really about a combination of praise and, and pride. I, I recently, uh, well, not, oh, thank you. Not long ago, um, I came across um, a Zen maxim that said, I believe it said, um, praise and blame away with them both. Uh, away with them both. Away with them both. Yes. <laughs> um, and... Um, those ends. <laughs> uh, very recently, uh, for, for the first time in a long time, um, I received a great deal of praise for a project that I was working on. Um, so much that I really didn't know what to do with it. And um, I, was, I was very grateful for it, but um, I was also kind of fearful and found myself sort of deflecting it. Um, but I'm still kind of in the situation where it's, it's kind of still coming. And, and just for context, I'm from a big Irish family where we were not allowed to get a big head about anything. <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, this has kind of been reinforced by the fact that, I guess it was like 18 years ago, there was an incident where I let something go to my head and it was like the universe was watching and everything went to hell after that. So... <laughs> so. Um, and I was wondering, you know, since this is a path of um, radical acceptance, you know, how do you accept the praise but not let it, you know, consume you and or or throw you off? Hmm. So, what do you think that Zen saying meant? Um, it seemed to me uh, uh, when I read it that it, it meant you know just get back to work, um, and <laughs> you know, and uh, and just and um, while that's uh, I, I can see the point of that, it's it's also hard to stay focused. Um, okay, so. How do you respond when you get blame? When I get blame, I tend to freeze up, um, get very still, and very, very lots, lots of you know heat going on in, in my in my body, in my head, and I feel very tense and defensive. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you get praise? Um, I tend to just sort of look down and um, and um, say thank you, but at the same time, like, okay, can we just move along now? That mm -hmm. that's, tends to be my reaction. What's the problem? I suppose the problem is uh, the fear of, oh, what will happen if I let this in? Hmm. So do you know anything about equanimity? I did a retreat on equanimity. Sorry? Uh, I did a retreat on equanimity. Uh -huh. um, at Great. So <laughs> give us a teaching then. 
I didn't teach the retreat. I just I went to. <laughs> <laughs> We were given some phrases, and I really can't remember okay. them now. Okay, so, <laughs> so there's a teaching um, of the Buddhas in which he's, that he calls the eight worldly dharmas. And what he says is that there is uh, gain and loss, there's pleasure and pain, there's fame and disrepute, and there's praise and blame. And so this Zen saying of doing away with both praise and blame is a, is a pointing towards that teaching. And essentially, what the Buddha said about these, eight, these four pairs, these eight things, is that they're the worldly winds. They are the worldly dharmas that, f that blow through our lives. And I don't know about you, but I usually, um, you know, whenever, as you, as you kind of hinted, whenever praise comes, you can bet right after that, right on its tail, there'll be blame about something else or, or even about the same thing. I've given talks, I've given Dharma talks where, you know, someone will come up and say that's the best Dharma talk they ever heard in their lives and I, they felt as if I was talking to them and then somebody else will come up about that very same Dharma talk and say, I don't know what on earth you were talking about, right? Praise and blame, praise and blame. And so what the Buddha said about that is that we don't need to have those worldly winds blow us away. That if we, if we are wise, we understand these eight worldly winds and that essentially we receive them because we understand that these are winds that are blowing through our lives over which we have very little control, if any. And that they will come and they will go. And what happens with winds? We were all, you know, if, you're, if you live in New York, we were subject to some really deep worldly winds a few weeks ago, right? And they came and they did whatever they did and they, and they left. So in the same way, these worldly winds to which we're subject are coming and going, they're not permanent. They may, have, they may have some effect, but they come and they go and they shift and they change. And you know, t today we have a clear day with uh, you know, 60 degree weather. So, the, so what the Buddha was pointing to was that if we, if we allow those worldly winds to shake us, then we'll be constantly subjected to being buffeted by those winds. So when, the, when praise comes, we'll be you know, proud and uh, we'll take it as, as true. And if we do that, when the blame comes, we will have the same thing, we will be ashamed or we'll, we'll, uh, we'll feel you know, um, buffeted by that too. And so we'll never be in any kind of steady um, uh, condition. So, the, so he's, he said essentially that if you understand that wisely, that these are winds that are constantly blowing over which we have no control, but that we can actually let them come and go. That 
there will be some stability in our lives. There will be some wisdom and peace. And that's the practice of equanimity. That, and the phrase that you're trying to remember is, all beings are heirs to their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon my wishes for them, but upon their own choices and actions. And that's in, that's in regard to others, that um, we may have these beautiful wishes, for instance, the wishes that we did tonight in the metta practice. We may have all of these beautiful wishes for the people around us. And yet, with wisdom, we understand that they are responding to these worldly winds the way they are, and however they respond and react to those worldly winds, they will be the heirs to those responses, to the consequences of those responses. So we can, it's, so it's not that when we're praised, we say, oh, it was nothing, oh, please don't praise me. It's okay to be praised, There's not a, it's not a problem to be praised. The problem is not the praise itself. The problem is the belief that now that's who you are. And the, and the blindness to the impermanence of all things. So that we can take it in and we can even feel good about a job well done or, um, or doing a good deed or having a generous heart or cultivating a mind that is wide open and spacious. And we can also, at the same time, understand that that's not who we are, that there is no identity that is permanent that we need to take on, but that we can meet all of the worldly winds with equanimity. With the, and that equanimity arises from wisdom, from the wisdom of knowing that things change, that they're, that they're, they're never perfect, and that there isn't any kind of permanent identity that we can take on and say, yep, that's who I am. So just at the same time that you're this really wonderful, competent um, uh, achiever, there are parts of your life where that's a, that are a mess too, right? And so not to take either of them too seriously or as some kind of identity, but to really be uh, I, equ equanimity is balance. And the, the, the word, the Pali word for equanimity is upeka. And the roots of, of upeka mean looking over. So it's, it's having a much wider view of the landscape. It's like rolling, it's like, you know, when you watch a movie and you see them roll the camera back to get a really wide lens. It's, equanimity is that. It's, it's rolling the camera back so that we take in the whole picture. And when we do that, um, we're um, allowing things to come and go without taking them on as an identity or without taking either side, either side of the ledger, either the positive side of the ledger or the negative side of the ledger as anything that's, um, that's permanent or that's a permanent identity. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent. I'd like to say that again. Equanimity is not indifference or apathy. Right? So that we're fully engaged in life. We're not 
the, the rolling of the camera lens back is not becoming indifferent to what's happening, but actually taking things in and seeing them with a wider perspective and a more spacious pr perspective so that we're not so caught up in the changing events of our lives. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Hi. Um, my name is Amy. Amy. So I'm, I'm interested in the connection between concentration and loving kindness. The, the two practices are usually separated temporally. First we do concentration, then we do loving kindness. Mm -hmm. And I understand that loving kindness also involves, that loving kindness meditation involves concentrating on, mm -hmm. on the well wishes. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what, what other connections there are. Why do you ask? So one reason why I ask is just that they, they're separated in that way. And, and, uh, but for you, why do you ask? So I, I'm, I'm thinking that there's, there's some element of uh, love and compassion that arises out of the concentration itself. Or, you know, that's what I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but then... What's your experience? So my experience is in, that in meditation, uh, when I'm concentrating on the breath, I, I'm just concentrating on the breath or bringing myself back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath. So I, I'm not noticing a connection in, the, in that meditation to, to loving kindness, but, but I do notice it when I'm being mindful in my everyday life. So when I'm practicing mindfulness in my everyday life, I do find that I'm, I pay more attention to, so the, to other mean, people. So do you mean that when you sit in formal meditation, you're just doing concentration practice and that you don't do mindfulness until you are in daily life? Um, or please... Yeah, no, well, so I'm, I'm new to this, so maybe I'm not using mm -hmm. the words the words. No, no, correctly. that's okay. That's okay. So, so there's, there's often some confusion because of the way, because of the didactic um, methods of teaching meditation. There can be some, uh, some confusion about shamatha and vipassana. And shamatha is the practice of um, calming the mind through one-pointedness, through one-pointedness. And the way we achieve one-pointedness or we, we train the mind to one-pointedness is by having an object, usually the breath in our tradition, and returning the attention over and over and over and over again to the breath no matter what's happening. And that's the shamatha practice. And shamatha is a, is a, means tranquilizing the mind. It's, it's tranquility as well as collectedness. And then there's a vipassana practice. And they're not really separate, but they're taught separately. And so, especially for beginners, sometimes there can be some confusion about what is vipassana and what is shamatha and whether they're two separate techniques or two separate practices. 
but actually the vipassana practice is taking the shamatha practice, the mind that becomes collected and tranquil, and allowing um, the, the mind to open in a way that, and I gave the instructions tonight, that when other predominant experiences arise, to allow the breath to be let go of and to just be, be present to whatever is arising. And when you do that, then what happens if the mind is tranquil and collected and we, it becomes like a laser, it becomes very clear. And so when it's directed towards present moment experience that's arising in the moment, then insight comes. And what is insight? The insight is really understanding the nature of things as they are. So it's understanding um, the impermanence of all things. It's understanding the unsatisfactory nature of all things. And it's also understanding the fact that because things are impermanent, they, they become um, unsatisfactory and, and their impermanence also leads us to understand the fact that there is no permanent enduring self in anything, right? So, so there is shamatha, which we, we attain through the one-pointedness practice, and then vipassana, where the, mind, the attention opens to sight, sounds, smells, tastes, thoughts, etc. This the six senses. The, in, in Buddhism, we include thinking as one of, as the sixth sense. So when we pay attention in a particular way, in a, in a present moment, uh, non-judgmental way, we begin to, to have some insight into the way things are. The loving-kindness practice is, um, is also a concentration practice. So it has a two-fold aspect the first aspect being one of concentration. So we did a very short loving-kindness practice at the end of our uh, um, Vipassana practice tonight, and that is repeating the, the wishes through a, um, a variety or a progression of, of beings, and, and the theory is that we do it first for ourselves, theoretically, because we're the most lovable. In, in the West, that may be a little different. And then to uh, you know, increasingly difficult people to send loving kindness to because what what are we doing? It's not so much trying to affect the outer world as it is affecting the inner world, cultivating a heart of kindness, right? But this uh, this repetition of that first holding the image of that person, whether it's oneself or the others, steady, is like being with the breath. It's that same steady, one-pointed attention which develops tranquility, collectedness of the heart and mind. And um, so the energy is collected and, and, and the, the mind and heart are tranquil. It also, um, so, and that comes through the directing the attention to the being but also to the repetition of the phrases, which becomes a kind of rhythmic one-pointedness. So every time we, we, so we keep it at four wishes because that's really easy for the mind 
for most people, for the mind to, to, to keep, to hold. So the four wishes of safety and um, peace and happiness and health and ease are relatively simple. So, so one can repeat them with some and, and develop some concentration. And the second aspect is that um, it also cultivates this heart of kindness. And over a period of time, as we, as we practice loving kindness, we'll notice that the heart breaks open in, in different ways. It manifests in different ways. So that there's a, so, so the, although um, uh, pedagogically it's taught in a linear way, they are, the, the, the practices are overlaid with each other and interact with each other and influence each other because it's very hard to, um, to, to apply mindfulness practices if the heart is hard and full of hate. Right? So we, we work on cultivating a heart of kindness which influences our vipassana and shamatha practice and we, uh, our shamatha and vipassana practice also um, begin to uh, soften the heart so that it's prepared for the loving kindness practice. So they're, they're hand in gloves, hands in gloves. They're not separate practices, even though they're taught separately and they're practiced somewhat separately. But what, what you'll notice is when you do the metta practice that the concentration begins to strengthen and when you do the concentration and, and vipassana practices that the heart begins to open. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Um, Hi. So I had this experience. What's your name? Basia. Sorry? Basya. Spell it for me. B-A-S-Y-A. Basya. Thank you. Um, so I had this experience during the metta this evening where um, you re we were getting progressively to more difficult situations and, and practicing metta with, with each scenario. And I found myself when we had like the semi-difficult person in our lives, you know, being able to do that and feeling like I hope I, I can't do the next one. You know, I'm just not going to be able to do that next one of doing the person that betrays you and the person that you feel like really... You beat. noticed I didn't ask you to I did there. notice it. That's what I'm saying. And then you went to the people in the room like, wow, that's so cool. I totally dodged that bullet. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like, whoa, I can really do that. And I felt like so relieved because I just knew I could not do the next step. And then when you read the stories, the Jack Cornfield story about um, the mother... Who, who kills her son's killer and then invites him as this new person into his house. I, I see these steps. I see this, this, this jump from, from being that kind of person that can never sort of work with, with these deep betrayals. And then I see examples like the story and I see other people being able to make that step to really being able to work with the hardest, most difficult. I'm at the point where I'm able to block them out 
and not let them into my life. Like that's the step that I feel like I'm able to do now, which is something, you know, I felt like I was trying to engage with it all the time and work with it and it didn't work. So now I'm feeling like blocking it out is where I'm at now. But I, I'm not understanding, at least I'm not seeing in my life how to take that next step or how that happens. Hmm. So how many people have, can resonate with what, she just, what Basya just asked? <laughs> how many people don't have a difficult person in their lives? <laughs> wow. <laughs> So if we realize that, and if we could visualize this room as a room where we all sat in hatred of the people who betrayed us, <laughs> yeah, and who have harmed us or hurt us in ways that we can't count. And we then um, pictured that widening to the rest of the world. And then think about if that's the world you want to live in. It might help you. The other, uh, on Sunday I was listening to the, I love to listen to, and if you've never heard this program, please check it out. It's called Unbeing on NPR on Sunday mornings. And it's a woman named Krista Tippett who is an incredibly skilled um, interviewer and she's been doing this for years. It used to be called Speaking of Faith. And she had on her show this last Sunday um, two people who are involved in what's called restorative justice. One was um, a Palestinian man whose brother had been killed by an Israeli bomb, a, an Israeli soldier, and the other was an Israeli mother whose son had been killed by a Palestinian bomb. And they were involved in, in this restorative justice project. Restorative justice, there's there are several across the country also where what, what is done is um, meetings between the perpetrators of crimes, like this woman in Washington, and, um, and the relatives of the victims. And what was really moving about listening to these two people was uh, how they were both able to get on with their lives through these incredible tragedies <laughs> by recognizing the humanity of the people on the other side. Through the recognition of the humanity on the people, of the people on the other side, I don't know if they were able to forgive completely but they were able to live without hatred. They were able to recognize 
And just listening to these two people, the woman and the man, relating to each other, they, they were kind of playful with each other. And hearing their stories about how they had first met each other and what their attitudes were, and the pain that they had to overcome, was incredibly inspiring. And what one, one, what one recognizes is that the world cannot survive if we continue to hold these kinds of deep historical hatreds without some way of breaking them, B-R-A-K-I-N-G, putting some kind of break on the historical momentum of hatred. And it doesn't mean that one doesn't, um, that one uh, encourages or um, enables wrongdoing, but that one, that, but that we don't lose our own humanity because something inhuman or inhumane has been done. Because our losing our own humanity makes the situation worse, not better. So to be betrayed is a really difficult experience. And one is not asked to just get over oneself. But this practice that we're asked to do, whether it's meditation or loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness, all of these practices are practices that point to freedom, to your freedom, not to the freedom of somebody else who's betrayed you, but to your own freedom. And, and, the, and the route to that freedom is wisdom and compassion. And, and the wisdom is not a wisdom that um, is easily won. And it's not a cognitive wisdom. It's a wisdom that understands in a deep, intuitive way what is required for one's own freedom. And so when we forgive, we forgive because we understand that the bitterness that we're carrying in our own hearts is doing absolutely nothing to our enemy, but is making us bitter and cruel. What if, like, the question I have connected to this question is that what if, like, like you're not really holding all these betrayals, or you know, sometimes it's more than one or two or three, <laughs> and, and you're not you're not necessarily living in that space of of. Um, feeling those betrayals, you basically block them out and say, but if someone mentions that person's name or if you're asked in meta to recall somebody who betrayed you, all of a sudden then that, that's a trigger, then you have that person in mind. So it's almost like they don't exist. You've, you've created this sort of world where in your mind... Uh, so what's this practice about? This practice is about working with what's difficult. It's not about blocking it out. Right. Or... You know, and maybe for a time, that's what's necessary for us to heal, right? So we put it aside and we say, okay, I'll come back to it when it doesn't hurt so much. Right. 
but you're going to have to come back to it at some point because there's something there that is that where you're not free. Yeah, totally. You're bound. And that's this is what we're dealing with in this practice. I can't give you I'm I'm not here to talk to you about your psychological issues, but really to talk about suffering and the end of suffering. And so when we're talking about forgiveness and we're talking about loving kindness and compassion, it's all about freedom. And, and it's all about being bound and suffering and being free from suffering. So if there's anything in your life that you can't face, you're bound. You're bound by that thing that you can't face. You're not free from it. Just because you've blocked it out doesn't mean you're free from it. And it's operating in your life on some level. So when you have resentment about someone, they're off in Hawaii having a really great time, right? All of them. Yeah, you know, we don't want them to have a great time, but that's what they're doing. And you're the one who's suffering. You're the one who's seething. You're the one who has resentment and cruelty and wishes of ill will. And, and that's affecting your body and your mind. So how will you get free? And, the, and these practices are not that we move from this to that in one fell swoop. Or the, you know, the, the metta practice is a practice that you do over, a lot, over your whole lifetime. Because believe me, as you're alive, there will be insults to your being that continue. You know, after the Buddha was enlightened, his cousin tried to kill him. You know, just because he was enlightened didn't mean that trouble didn't come his way. He had backache, right? The Buddha had backache. And people spread terrible rumors about him and um, were constantly questioning his awakening and questioning his wisdom and telling terrible stories about him and spreading all kinds of nasty rumors about him. So. So it's not as if we're going to come to some level of realization and then everything's going to be great. Right? Life is life and we're in this human body. We took on this body and all of the joys and sorrows of this body. And the, the eight worldly winds, they come and go. So, so the question is not, you know, I don't want to raise that again because I've got it all, you know under lock and key, but is there any, do you want any part of your life to be, to be like that, to be hidden, to be having to be buried? Or, and, and of course, to not have any kind of perfectionistic idea about how the cultivation of your heart and mind, first the speed of it or the lack of speed of it, or the progress of it, that's not your business. Your business is, can I slowly and surely, as it says in the Dhammapada, don't say that because it's such little progress that it will come to nothing because drop by drop a jar gets filled, slowly. So your practice is like that. Your practice is slow and steady and determined and persevering, and diligent, and energetic. 
and your and your 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 aim is not to become a perfect being but to be awake to the way things are and to be able to be free in the midst of that so any part of your life that you feel you can't face or you can't deal with that's exactly where you need to go and forgiving doesn't mean that we're condoning or that we don't think what they did wasn't right but can we soften our hearts enough to say oh yeah this human this human life this is how it is so there's a question back there Could you take the I get a little confused when I hear the stories about the forgiveness projects like the stories that Restored you were just justice, telling yeah. because I for me it always seemed like if you can with this practice if you can sit in the difficult place and let some of that go and forgive it that that was kind of the purpose of why we practice in this like in the difficult spaces and then when i hear the stories about the forgiveness projects and things like that it just it makes me wonder are we saying that that's more of an ideal when we can actually sit with the person who can cause us harm or is there just as much you know have we attained the same objective by being able to do it within ourselves and achieving that freedom mm, that's a good question i you know i i think we all have to do it the way we can do it for some people being face to face with someone and knowing their humanity is really helpful for others it may not be possible but again it comes back to understanding how free am i right and and also to to not um try to pretend that you're something other than that you're that you're at some stage other than where you are but can you be fully accepting of where you are right now so if basia can can only you know can only deal with it by like stuffing it down right now can she can you be comfortable with that if you're not comfortable with that well that's a huge hint right but to but to really be accepting of oh that's all i can do right now because i'm feeling so hurt that anything else is not possible and to hold the possibility that in the future that might change and not think that's who i am because that's not who you are so you know maybe uh, you know just little by little drop by drop that jar of forgiveness gets filled and maybe it's the tiniest tiny tiniest little opening that happens right now and maybe you know and maybe all you can do is um even you can't even send the meta phrases maybe all you can do is think of the person's name and then just feel your skin crawl or whatever happens right or the or the aversion that you feel and have some compassion for that aversion and have compassion for where you are and hold out the possibility that that can change 
and and maybe then you know e each step is is uh, possible because we're not holding on to some idea of who we are and how we're going to be forever. So maybe today we can send wishes in the abstract and maybe tomorrow we can write a letter and maybe the next day we can make a phone call or the next year or the next 10 years, I don't know, however long it takes. So, so you know, what you're bringing up is something really important that in any of these practices, whether it's metta or forgiveness or compassion or wisdom, to not have any kind of ideal idea about what it should look like, but really be so present that we're simply here for whatever the conditions are right now, and can we be present and completely aware and accepting of how things are right now and hold out the possibility and the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom that it will change. Everything changes, nothing stays the same. Is that okay? And your name? Spell it for me. Pretty, lovely name. Okay, that's so just one quick question, yeah. Thanks. I um, was wondering about the role of... Your the name? Oh, I'm Abby. Abby, hi. Hi. Um, I'm wondering about the role of a wise no, <laughs> meaning, you know, coming up and being clear about um, what you're not going to accept with someone in continuation of this line mm. of questioning. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could explain um, a little bit about uh, w if you feel like w where that's appropriate and then uh, if there's parameters <laughs> for it to boundaries, feel... Boundaries are good! To feel <laughs> clean, right? Yeah, <laughs> boundaries are fine. Right. Boundaries are not a problem. And compassion can be fierce. Compassion isn't some kind of wet noodle thing, you know, <laughs> right? Compassion can be really fierce, so that, you, so that it doesn't have to be a weak no, it can be a very strong no. It can be, I will not tolerate this. You know, women who are abused in relationships need to say no. And so, oh, well, you know, he's this and he's that and poor thing, and it's like, no. That's not acceptable. And you can forgive at the same time. But it doesn't mean that if you're forgiving that you have to go back for more. You can, as my friend Marianne Williamson used to say, you can, you know, uh, say hello, you can have a drink and you don't have to invite him home, right? So you don't, you, you never, you, their, their boundaries are perfectly fine. They're perfectly wonderful things. They're necessary in human relationships. And, and that, though they come from wisdom, the understanding of what boundaries are appropriate come from wisdom. And that's the part I'm grasping at a bit is, you know, in more subtle cases, when do we react with the no, and when do we react with the kindness? You know, 
Well, that's where, that's, presence, that's where presence comes in, is, you know, if you are, the whole point of being present and aware is, is appropriate response. So what's appropriate in this moment with exactly the same situation may not be appropriate tomorrow in exactly the same situation because nothing is ever the same. And we cultivate appropriate response through mindfulness? Or through is there awareness more? and understanding. So, if we're, so wisdom tells us exactly what is happening now and through that, through that understanding of what's happening now, what the appropriate response is, arises. It's not like we're going to be able to say, you know, in advance what we're going to do when A and B happens because we don't know what all the conditions are going to be. So our appropriate response has to do with really understanding a whole picture, pulling back the lenses so that we are overlooking, we're looking over, not overlooking, but looking over the whole landscape so we understand what's, what's required. And then, and with our practice, we gain some confidence in our ability to do that. So we have to stop. So let's just sit for a moment. And consider for ourselves where in our hearts we're able to open, create some space, and forgive. And we can forgive from a distance. We don't have to forgive and then go back for more. We can forgive from a distance to, to allow our own hearts to be open, to allow space for our own hearts. And none of these discussions are um, written in stone to really understand that each situation requires its own wisdom and its own compassion, and that that's why we cultivate the mind and heart of awareness and mindfulness and wisdom so that there is an internal wisdom that tells us what is appropriate in the moment. So just look at your own heart and see where it can open. And just to notice wherever the heart feels cruel. Or where it feels hurt. and to first generate compassion for, the, for our own hearts that have been wounded or abandoned or betrayed. Feel compassion for that first. And allow the cultivation of the mind and heart to inform our compassion. And meeting together and reflecting on the Dharma, practicing together, we create a field of goodness 
kindness and merit. And instead of holding that for ourselves, we share it with all beings everywhere with whom we share this small planet and this large universe. And so we, we cast our merit out as a huge net covering the whole world. And we dedicate our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing for the safety, the peace and happiness, the health and the ease, the freedom from suffering and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May it be so. Thank you so much for your attention and for your practice. Travel safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.